in Luke 15 uh, for the third week because it's an awesome chapter. We have done uh, a week on the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And now, or last week, we started into the parable of the, the lost son. Um, although I renamed it quite awkwardly as the parable of the two lost sons and the prodigal father. Um, because Jesus didn't give it a name, so I can give it a name just like anybody else can. And last week we saw that, that the idolatry of the two sons is, as Tim Keller brilliantly put it, it's an assault on family. It's an assault on community. These two guys, in their desires and in their wants, ripped their family apart. So the father, then, we read, has to tear his life apart. We read in Greek that he, he doesn't divide his property among them. He divides his bios among them. He divides his life among them. And uh, that's his way of keeping relationship and keeping the door open for these sons in the future. But the one that we were focusing on more so last week and a bit this week is the younger one. And you know the story. I'm not going to read. Sarah's already read the verses. But he, he, he sells his share of the inheritance. He heads off to a distant land and he wastes everything. And those are things that he had control over and he made some bad choices in, in terms of that. But then there was also a famine in the land which he didn't have control over. And there's plenty of things in life, you know, there's, there's times that we make bad choices and we make bad decisions and we maybe waste some money or, or, or make a bit of a, a financial uh, hoo-ha. But there are other things that we have no control over. And this guy had a double bill. He wasted all his father's money. And then after that, a famine arose to make the situation worse. So he seeks employment and he ends up working for a pig farmer. <laughs> now, no disrespect to pig farmers, but I have never in my life been in a smellier place than in a pig house. It is a phenomenal thing. I tell the kids in school about it. Anytime I'm teaching about ammonia, I ask them, have you ever been in a pig house? And uh, one or two will maybe nod. If you have, you won't forget it. Uh, but this is where he ends up. And not only is he working with pigs, which would, which would be bad enough being in among them, uh, he is also feeding them. And not only is he feeding them, but he's looking at them and thinking, I would love to eat their food. <laughs> this is simply as low as it goes for a Jew. As low as it goes. He is far from the Father in a distant land feeding unclean animals. But that is what happens to everyone who turns their back on God and runs in the other direction. You end up feeding pigs. And it can take many, many different sort of appearances. But that ultimately is where you end up feeding pigs. In among the unclean, doing what you were not designed to do, far away from the Father. This son is, is not clothed properly. He is ashamed of himself. He has nothing and he is on his own, feeding pigs. It is the lowest of the low. But we read that he comes to his senses, which means he gets his eyes opened. He suddenly has clarity and conviction that where he is in life is not where the Father would have him to be. He doesn't just continue in his, in his sin. He doesn't just continue in his rebellion. He has a moment of extreme conviction. This is something that we need to pray for those that we know who are lost. That they'll have these moments where they come to their senses. And suddenly the veil comes off. The, the blinkers come off the eyes. We read in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan's tactic is to blind our eyes. To blind the eyes of people that they will not see the glory of God 
in, in Jesus Christ. Satan also distracts us. We read in the parable of the sower of those weeds and thorns that grow up and choke the little seedling that has sprouted. And we need these things to be cleared away so we can have moments of clarity when, when we come to our senses. And the thing that brought this young son to his senses was his memory of the father. His memory of the father. And I would, I would encourage everyone who works with children from, from a young age, nothing you ever do is wasted. <laughs> because you're planting little seeds that you just never know in the future that they'll come back and they'll remember something about the Father that they were taught when they were very, very wee. And you maybe thought they weren't listening or they weren't getting it. But it's the memories of the Father that causes this guy to start to want to come home. He remembers the goodness of the Father. He remembers that even his hired servants. Now you had the sons, you had the household slaves who lived in the household and were reasonably well looked after by most landowners. And then you had the day laborers who were brought in from the local town, given a day's wages for a day's work and then told to go home. And they weren't looked after that well. But this guy realizes even those day laborers, my father looks after them. Even they are better off than I am. And he realizes that he needs to go back to the Father. You see, as thinking about, about this, this concept of sin this week, that sin really is separation from the Father. We, we tend to think of sin as, you know, we maybe have this list, here's the big sins and here's the moderate sins and here's the sort of small sins and all these different individual acts or things that we call sin but I think in a bigger sense, sin is anything that separates us from the Father. Anything that puts distance between ourselves and God is sin. Right from Adam and Eve in the garden, whenever they took their rebellious decision, and, and basically they were acting just like the son. They were basically saying, you know, we'd be better off if you were dead and we didn't have to listen to you and we could just make our own decisions and do our own thing. It separated them from the Father. They hid and he had to go looking for them. In Isaiah 59, we read that your sin has separated you from God. In Jeremiah 2, God says, my people have committed two sins. And you're waiting to see, well, what is it? Did they all get drunk? Did they take drugs? Did they watch something they shouldn't have watched? Did they use bad words? What are the two sins? And he says, they've forgotten me days without number. That's one of them. The distance, they have been separated from God. And he's, that's sin whenever separation comes into the relationship with God. And Romans 3 says that all have sinned and done what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Fallen away from him, separated from him, not living in communion with him in the way that we should. And so this son who is in sin and is separated from the father realizes that he needs to go back to the father. And that's repentance. Repentance is basically I'm walking in one direction. I stop, I turn around and I walk in the opposite direction. My sin is causing me to walk away from the father. In repentance, I turn 180 degrees and I start walking towards the father. And that's what he realizes he has to do comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to set out. I'm going to go back to my father. And he rehearses. I don't know if you've ever done anything wrong and rehearsed your confession statement. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm going to go to the boss and I'm going to tell her I did this and this and this. And yeah, you have it all figured out in your head. He does this. As he's, as he's feeding the pigs, uh, he, he starts to develop a plan for what he's going to do uh, when he gets back to dad. And, he's, and it starts off with, uh, with confession. I have sinned against heaven and against you. Sin is always in two directions. Always in two directions. And all sin, according to, to David in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba that has separated him from God. And again, part of that prayer in Psalm 51 is not, don't cast me out of your presence. Don't let me be separated from you. That's his, that's his fear because he knows that's what sin does. It separates. But he says in verse 4 of Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you only. And you who know the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah think, well, there's a whole lot of other players in this. But David says, my sin is against God. So the, the prodigal says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Whenever we sin, there's a vertical aspect where we're always sinning against God because we're separating ourselves from him when we sin. But then there's other people and we hurt them and we harm them and we mistreat them. So sin, the, the prodigal realizes it's in two directions, against heaven and before his father. So the first stage of his speech that he's rehearsing is confession. I'm going to confess. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. He's done well there. And then the second thing that he's going to do in his, in his rehearsed speech is he's going to acknowledge the consequences of his sin. So there's the confession of sin and there is the consequences of sin. He's going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's right. <laughs> he's not. He's disgraced the father with the way he has behaved. He has tarnished the family name in the village. He has wasted a third of the wealth of the family and he has lost his status as a son. And again, that is another consequence of sin. Sin separates us from the Father. Sin takes away our status as children of God, as sons and daughters of God. So he realizes he has no rights, he has no claims, he is unworthy. He doesn't make excuses. I don't know about you, but, but one, of the, one of the most sort of, I think, mature signs in life of being able to make an apology is, is to not then immediately justify what you're apologizing for. You know, you, you know that classic where you go to someone and say, do you know what, I'm sorry that that annoyed you. <laughs> and you're not saying sorry for what you did. You're saying sorry on their behalf for getting annoyed about what you did. You know? and, and, and this guy, he's not making any excuses. He's not going to go and say, well, you know, I'm young and I need to get out and see the world and I need to, to go and sow my wild oats and find myself and all this nonsense. No, he just... None of that. These are the consequences. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the third part of his confession is to do with atonement. He's going to atone for his sin. Make me like one of your hired servants. You see, he has wronged the father financially. He's wasted the father's money. And he therefore cooks up a plan that he's going to go and learn a trade and be like one of these day laborers. Not be even a slave in the household, but be a day laborer. And come in and work 
and make some money and gradually pay off the financial debt that he owes. So he's got two, two great debts to the Father. He's a financial debt, and that financial debt he plans, I'm going to atone for that debt by, by working and getting money and paying back. And then he's got the social debt where he's disgraced the family and he's no longer willing to be called the son. And therefore he's going to accept that and just say, don't call me son anymore. Let me come back and let me live here, but don't, don't call me son. So he goes off rehearsing his speech. Confession, consequences, atonement. You know, like when you're in GCSE English and you're trying to memorize a speech and you've got these three wee heading, confession, consequences, atonement. And he's, he's walking up the road rehearsing this speech that he's going to bring to the Father. So he goes. But he then encounters something that the more I've thought about it this last week, I have no point of reference for this, what we're going to see here. And I beg of you, do not let your familiarity with the the parable of the lost sons diminish what you're going to see. You're not going to see something for the first time, but you're maybe going to be reminded of it. I have no category. I have no point of reference. I cannot understand how good God is. (laughs) I just can't get my head around it. In this parable, he acts over and over and over again in a way that no Middle Eastern father should have acted. He just blows all the categories, all the expectations. It is absolutely unreal. When he is still a long way off, the father saw him. God sees. You ever done something and thought, nobody sees that? I wish somebody would see that. God sees. Have you ever had something done to you and you just feel, nobody sees that. Nobody's aware of that. Nobody nobody understands. God sees and God understands. There's a a lovely uh, incidence in in Exodus chapter 2 whenever God is speaking to Moses and he says to Moses about the, the children of Israel who are in Egypt in captivity in bondage. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. Love that. I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, I have come down to rescue. God sees and you don't tend to see things that are a long way off unless you're looking for them the father is watching and he's waiting the only thing that you probably look out the window to the end of the driveway for is the gray prime van wondering when it will come but this father is sitting and he is looking out the window watching and waiting for his son who has disgraced him, who has broken his heart, who has ripped the family apart with his idolatry, and yet the father is sitting watching and waiting. I have no point of reference for that. None. And he's not sitting with a a length of blue pipe beside him to give the infant a beating when he comes home. I have 
No, I just can't. I can't get my head around it. And then in verse, still in the same verse, the father is filled with compassion. (laughs) Filled with rage, filled with anger, filled with disappointment, filled with a sense of, you know, I told you so. As he sees his boy dressed in rags in the distance, coming, coming up the driveway. Compassion. <laughs> Compassion, it's a Greek word, splachnon. It means your guts. You ever, ever had those experiences where you just, you feel an emotion so strongly that you feel a physical manifestation of it? It could be fear. It could be anxiety. Unfortunately, a lot of people experience that where, where, where anxiety causes a physical manifestation. It could be just joy at seeing someone that you have not seen for a long time and you just feel that wee flutter <laughs> inside you. Splanknon, compassion. What it means in Latin is to suffer with. To suffer with. It does not mean pity. The father did not feel sorry for him and think, oh goodness, look at the cut of that. No, it's, it's compassion. And of all the emotions that Jesus experiences in the Gospels, if you were to ask people, what, what, what emotion do you think Jesus experiences the most? It's not love. <laughs> it's compassion. Over and over again, moved with compassion. We need to have the heart of the Father and be moved with compassion for the lost, that we are not just indifferent to them. He's tore up in his guts. He's turned inside out and he wants to be with his son. He's filled with compassion. He ran to his son. And I can hear the Pharisees as they listen to Jesus. Remember, these guys are in the background. I can hear them say, no, 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 no. No, wise up. Okay, the compassion we can handle. You know, and the watching and waiting we can handle. But the running, Jesus, you're just pushing it too far. Because for a man of status in society to run in public was a shameful thing. Those of you that don't want to go jogging, there you go. You've got your biblical reason for not <laughs> going run. For a man of status to run was a shameful thing. Because they wore gowns and, and togas and long flowing garments. And in order to run, you had to sort of roll it up and tuck it into your belt. And then your legs were exposed. That's not good. And you're off running and the wind is flapping around as you, as you run and your, your undergarments would maybe become exposed. And it's just shame, shame, shame. It's not done. It's not proper. A child might run, but a man, a grown man, definitely not. Definitely not. I have no category for how good God is. Would I run if it was me? If I had been treated the way the son here had treated the father, you know, your, your heart might have fluttered at the joy of reunion and, 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 and your, your eyes filled with delight when you see him coming back. But there's part of you that would still say, right, I need to stay sort of stoic here. I need to keep a fairly grey, stony face on me. I need to make sure that he knows the implications of what he's done need to be a good, good parent here and, and, and make sure there's a lesson learned. None of that. He runs. 
He runs. He is so good. Why does he run? He runs out of the sheer joy of seeing his son, but he also knows that as his son approaches the village, the village elders are going to heckle him and give him a hard time because of the way he's acted. He runs to protect his son from the other villagers. And as we'll see next week, he maybe runs to protect his son from somebody else who's in the story. who We haven't really encountered yet, but is actually the main point of the story. <laughs> the elder brother. The father runs to protect him. To intercept and make sure nobody else gets to him first. And then the father embraces him and kisses him. I have no category for how good God is. It's, it's unreal. Could you do this? Could I do this? God does it. He is so unlike anyone that you or I have ever met or encountered. And I wonder, do you, like me sometimes, make him small? Do you tame God? Do you domesticate God? Can you handle a God who rolls up his garment, tucks it into his belt and sprints off down the driveway to the lost? Can you handle that? (laughs) Can you handle one who's moved with compassion for someone who has treated him with absolute contempt? Can you deal with that? And goes and embraces him and kisses him. This son that has taken the inheritance early, that has wished his father dead, that has shamed him in front of the village, who has wasted his money, who should have been beaten, who should have been told, don't you ever come back here. There should have been a ceremony where they take this pot out into the center of the village and they smash it to indicate that the son is dead and gone from the family. Should have done all of that. But instead you have this father sprinting off down the driveway with his garments blown in the wind and his knees visible. Can you handle the goodness of God. It is beyond our understanding. And I found myself reading this this week and thinking, I've I've known this story for 40 odd years. (laughs) And yet I'm marveling at how good God is. How do you do that, God? How how can you be so good? I, I can't, I couldn't do what you're doing here. Tim Keller suggests that if the father had spent all those years clobbering his son in his heart, then when he saw him, he would have clobbered him. You ever sat and just thought to yourself, you know what, if he ever comes back around here, I know what I, I'll have a word with him. Yeah? I'll give him a piece of my mind. If he ever, I know what I, you ever do that after a difficult conversation, you think, boy, the next time I'm, I'm going to, yeah. And you, and you rehearse it all and you, in your heart, you're tearing people apart and you're thinking of, of what you could say. And if the father had spent all those months clobbering his son in his heart, then when he saw him out of the overflow of his heart, he would have clobbered him. But the father didn't do that. He spent all those months kissing his son in his heart. He spent all those months not dreaming about a conversation where he would put this boy in his box, but dreaming about what it would be like to embrace him. I have no point of reference for how good God is. That's what's going through his mind. He's not sitting thinking of the sharpest line that he can wheel out that'll just pull the carpet out from under this boy when he comes back. He's he's dreaming. He's fantasizing about embracing and welcoming back the lost. (laughs) He is so good. What do we rehearse in our hearts for the people who have wounded us? Goodness me, this is a challenging parable. 
So he gets to deliver his speech. Confession, consequences, atonement. Confession, consequences, atonement. You know, he's got it all lined up and he's said it so many times on the way down the road. And the father allows him to do the first part. You know, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Yes, that's entirely right. And it's really important that we confess. So the father lets him do that. The father lets him say the second part, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Absolutely true. You're not. <laughs> You're not. The way you have behaved means that you have forfeited that right. And you need to know that your sin breaks that relationship. So the father's okay with him saying that. So confession, he's got that bit out. Consequences, he's got that bit out. And I can see him just opening his mouth about to say his atonement part. I'm going to pay for this, dad. I'm going to, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to make it right. It'll maybe take a few years. Maybe you might have to use some of your contacts to get a local <coughs> tradesman to take me on and teach me a few skills. But I'm going to, I, I'm, he's, he's about to say it the third part of his speech, and he gets interrupted. <laughs> and what he gets interrupted with is the gospel. Because, <laughs> yes, you need to confess that you have sinned. Yes, you need to understand the consequences of separation and loss of status as a son. But you're not making atonement for it. I am. <laughs> I am. I'm going to atone and I'm going to make things right and I'm going to pay back. You see, whenever somebody wrongs us, there's then a debt created. It might not be financial, but it might be an emotional debt or some other debt. What do we pray in the older versions of the Lord's Prayer? Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Sin creates debt. Debt with God and debt with other people. And when somebody wrongs you, you have a choice. I have a choice. Either I force them to pay it back through how I treat them, or I absorb the debt myself. And you have to be pretty solid in your faith <laughs> to, to absorb debts. It's a dangerous thing to do. But that's what God does, and that's what Jesus does. We don't force people to pay their debts for their sins. The Father says, I'm going to make an atonement for this. I'm going to absorb the debt. And he paid the price. And yet again, his goodness is on a level that I just have no <coughs> point of reference for. He could well have said, yes, son, that would be a real good life experience for you to go and get a job and work hard and learn a trade. And over a period of time, I'll not charge any interest. Pay me back and then we'll be good. No, <laughs> I can't get my head around the goodness of God. Bring the best robe and put it on him. I wonder who owned the best robe in the house. It was the father's robe. It was his own robe. And the son, for all we know, still has evidence of his time with the pigs <laughs> sticking to his clothes. And the father says, let's cover that over. Let me give you a robe. Just like he did in Eden with, with Adam and Eve, he covered. Just like he always does, he covers, he covers, he covers. There's a beautiful little picture. It's only just come to my mind in, uh, in the story of Jacob and Esau. And... Uh, Jacob 
pretends to be Esau and he puts on, it's been a while since I've read this, I'm going from memory, he puts on like a, like a hairy outfit to, so that when he comes before his father, his father will think that he is Esau. Correct me if I'm wrong because <laughs> I'm vague in my recollections. So when I, he, he's, he's closed and when he comes before the father, the father sees Esau. And whenever we're closed and come before the Father, the Father sees Jesus. <laughs> he sees his child. He sees his son. Put the best robe on him. Cover up all those other things. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Not any old ring, but the signet ring, which had the family sort of stamp in it. And it meant that whenever a business agreement or contract was being done, you didn't sign it, you didn't put your autograph on it, you, you put a blob of wax on it and you pressed the ring into it, which was the family seal. This son, this wayward boy who has wasted one third of the family's money is brought back in and told, you're now allowed to do business again with the family. You're now given Again, authority over the family's resources. I have no point of reference for how good God is. I can't get my head around it. I, I, I don't know. I would have been saying, yeah, you can come back, that's fine, but I don't think I can trust you with, with the family's wealth again, so, so, so you're not going to do any business deals? No, no, get the ring on them. No. Unreal. Now, this all, you've got to realize, this all follows Repentance. You don't be careless and reckless about this. You don't, you don't, you don't do this for someone who's unrepentant, who has, who has created havoc and then swaggers back into your life again with not a, an ounce of repentance before God or of, 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 uh, of, of seeking forgiveness and rest. You don't, you, know, you don't just put your heart out there to get trampled all over again. This, this follows genuine repentance. That's why all these things happen. Put a ring in his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Again, the slaves didn't have sandals. The sons did. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I think not. <laughs> I think not. I think we'll get a ring on you and we'll, we'll get some shoes on your feet and we'll get a robe on you and you are my son. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. The fattened calf, I can imagine the, the, the two sons for, for whatever number of years it took to fatten up a calf. I can imagine the two of them every day as, as they would have fed this thing and, and watched it out in the, in the fields wondering, I wonder when that will be used for a feast. I wonder what special occasion will happen sometime in the future. What, what big event there will be that that calf will be taken and used for. And Father says, no, <laughs> no. Would have fed about 100 people. The whole village is coming. Everyone's going to see. The elders of the village who would have heckled the son coming back in, they're going to be invited to this feast so they can see the father restoring the son. It's the highest honor that can be shown to anyone was to kill the fattened calf for their meal. This son of mine is how the father speaks at the end of our passage. This son of mine. Hence in Ephesians 1, we are adopted. In Romans 8 and Galatians 4, two of the most beautiful pictures of the Holy Spirit. So much so that in Galatians 4, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of His Son. Or the Spirit of Sonship. Or the Spirit of Adoption. So we come trudging back up the lane, covered in pig excrement and stinking and our clothes torn, skinny, haven't had a decent bite to eat for ages. And we come trudging along and the Spirit of the Son comes into us 
and we're adopted. <laughs> we're adopted into the family of God. We're not slaves. We're adopted as children. And the spirit within us, we can't even help ourselves. Once that spirit's within us, we start saying, Abba, Father, because we're sons and daughters. I've told you before, but just in case ladies would feel you know, left out and you don't want to be a son, you do. The son got the inheritance in that culture, and that's, that's why it's good to, to be referred to as a son. <laughs> but let's be inclusive, sons and daughters. Jesus, when he died on the cross, resurrection, John 20, and for the first time in the gospel, he refers to the disciples, not as disciples, not as friends, but as brothers. Because his cross has created children for God, a family for God. Sonship meant security. You're in the family and you're safe and you're secure. It meant access to the Father. It meant hope because you have an inheritance. And inheritances are awesome. But you know what? Whenever your Father owns everything... (laughs) all of creation and is in the work of new creation and a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, that's the inheritance. That's pretty good. Hope for the future. For what? The son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, resurrection is the reason for the celebration. Resurrection. And as I said last week, and I'm I'm drawn to a close, any Jew in the first century who heard about a son going off in disgrace to a foreign land due to sin and idolatry, they would immediately have thought, ah, that's Israel going into exile in Babylon. That's what's going on. And the sign that the exile was ended, again, I go back to what I feel was a really important series last summer, a, a sign that the exile was over was a return of the presence of God, which didn't happen in Ezra and Nehemiah whenever they rebuilt the temple. The return of the presence of God and forgiveness of sins on a national, global level. Forgiveness of sins. And the sign that, re- that, that exile was over, the, the, the great sign of it was that the people had their sins forgiven, that the presence of God returned. And the great picture of it in the Old Testament, the greatest single picture of the end of exile is Ezekiel chapter 37, whenever the valley of dry bones, all the bones come together and you have this army and they are enfleshed and they are alive. It's resurrection. The greatest sign that the exile is over is resurrection. My son was dead and is alive again. But that resurrection for us could not happen until another son went to a far country. Jesus tells this story of a son who is naked, hungry, ashamed, crying out to his father, being received with open arms. But Jesus is telling this in the section of Luke where he is on the journey to Jerusalem, where he will be stripped naked. And he will be ashamed. shame will be poured on him. And he'll not get a fattened calf. He'll get vinegar to drink. And arms will be open, but they are not the arms of the Father. They're his arms as they're nailed to the cross. And he will cry out to the Father. 
But unlike the prodigal who the father ran to and embraced, when he cries out to the father, part of his cry will be, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you see, this son, Jesus, went into exile, separated from the father because of sin. Not his sin, mine. That's why every time we sing about sin forgiven, the hands go up. Because <laughs> it means something. This son went into exile, was shamed in a foreign land, naked, hungry, dying alone, exiled from the father. He experienced that ultimate exile so that he could end the exile, forgive sins, give us access back to the presence of God and bring us and make us alive again. We who were dead in our sins made alive. I have no category for how good God is. Nothing I've ever experienced is like this. I'd love to understand it because that's the sort of person I am. I like to understand things. I like to have a clear definition. I like to just have it all in a box. And God just says no. No. He experienced exile. He forgave our sins. He went back to the Father and brought us back to the Father as well. That's worth having a feast about. The son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they celebrated. You understand, when we feast together, which we're about to do, there is the joy of forgiveness that we're celebrating. Loads of things. But the joy of being forgiven. I want you to see as well, the Father takes joy in forgiving. He loves doing it. It's not like you and me where we're maybe reluctant to do it or we, find, we do it through gritted teeth. He loves doing it. This Father's celebrating. Look at me. I'm forgiving my boy. Come on, let's have a party. I'm forgiving my boy. <laughs> Unreal. And Jesus is being criticized for who he eats with in this chapter. That's why the parables come. And he's basically saying to them, the return from exile that you've been waiting for for centuries is happening before your very eyes. Forgive me if I feel like having a party. Can you handle a God who parties? Can you handle a God who hugs and kisses? Can you handle a God who forgives? You know, as long as he forgives me, you know, I don't know about those other people. It's safe to come home. You hear that? It's safe to come home. The son remembered the father and he decided it's safe to come home. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done. Just come home. Turn around and come home. The meal, the feast was the ultimate way to celebrate homecoming. It's the best way to practice intimate, flourishing, healthy family and community. In the meal you feel at home. And and eternity pictures a feast. Revelation pictures a feast. Matthew nineteen pictures a feast. Isaiah twenty five pictures a feast. That's gonna be awesome. Imagine if you could get a little preview of it now. 
Imagine if you could just get a glimpse. These, these feasts that the Bible talks about, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and these, these great times of joy and celebration that lie out in the future. Imagine if you could get a glimpse of it now. <laughs> you can. <laughs> and it's called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Supper. Do this to remember. And the very fact that you have to do this is like baptism. We talked about baptism a few weeks ago. You don't baptize yourself. <laughs> it happens in community. The Lord's Supper. Yes, of course, you can take the emblems privately on your own. There's nothing wrong with doing that. I would encourage it. But ultimately, it is a communal thing. You feast together. And Jesus is saying, if you want to share my salvation and you want to return from exile, then you eat this meal together. You talk together. You confess together. You make decisions together. You learn, you pray, you worship, you celebrate together. And you get a glimpse, just a glimpse of what the future will be like. And let's do that. Before we do it, we're going to worship.